What's up, guys? J.K. White here at the Baseball Rebellion, here bringing you episode 39 of the Baseball Rebellion podcast. And uh, today's going to be a little bit different. I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing a gentleman by the name of Riley Tincher, who has a wonderful story to share. And uh, we get pretty deep into some stuff, and I wanted to kind of warn you a little bit about some of the conversation we're going to have. It gets a little bit deep about confidence and uh, some some players that he's worked with that that uh, go down a pretty dark path um, because of some some tension uh, and some pressures and stuff of, of baseball and sports and life and things like that. So uh, it, it gets pretty deep, and I uh, just wanted to kind of forewarn you before you listen to it. I don't know if uh, the kids are in the car, things like that. There's no curse words or anything like that, but I, I just wanted to make sure. And uh, we're not going to have a main content portion of today's podcast because of how long we talked and how important I think this is. This is probably, um, you know, obviously we've done a lot of great podcasts and I'm, I'm proud of every one of them, but this is probably the most important one that I've ever done. And I want uh, the time to be dedicated to um, that because this stuff that we talk about has affected me personally uh, in a very, very close, close way with a, a best friend of mine going down a, a path that um, was not great and uh, ended up uh, being very tragic. And uh, I just want everybody to hear what he has to say and hear some of the stuff that we talk about. And if you have any questions, please contact me or reach out to him as well and follow him on Twitter and our uh, Instagram and all that stuff. Uh, he's a great guy, great inspiration, great story. And uh, here we go. Welcoming on the show today, we have Riley Tincher. And uh, Riley, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, JK. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. And uh, I'm super excited about this interview today. Um, so those of you who are listening right now, obviously, uh, you know, we like to have different guests on the show, whether it be uh, from the physical side of playing baseball, sports in general, coaches, players, uh, talking about their, their games, their success, their methods. Um, and then, you know, we also like to have um, coaches from on, on the mental side of things, uh, motivational guys who do a great job at reaching out to players of all ages, coaches as well, parents to help them um, on, on the, the mental side of things. And uh, Riley is one of those guys. Riley uh, was an All-American pitcher at uh, Wisconsin Whitewater and then um, turned uh, mental, mental coach uh, with his master's degree in sports pedagogy. I got that right, right? Got that said that right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, you got it. You got and uh, <laughs> with an emphasis in sports psychology from Baylor, and uh, very, very uh, important, I think, interview today for a lot of those listening from from all sides of the game, whether you're a parent with a player or a player, or uh, you know, or coach of players, coach of people, and uh, we might get into some heavy things, some some ideas and thoughts that uh, go to some different places, but I think. The, the reason why they're they're important is because they, they don't get talked about enough. And, and Riley and I had been talking a little bit before we started recording the podcast today and uh, got into some really great stuff. And, and uh, we want to go ahead and start sharing that with you. So, Riley, um, why don't you, you know, talk a little bit about your journey from, you know, a, a young baseball player into a All-American uh, at Wisconsin Whitewater? Uh, yeah, so, you know, my my story is kind of like uh, no other. I started playing baseball uh, at a young age. And, and before I get into my story, a lot of 
a lot of it's amazing what happens in your life and what it's preparing you for. A lot of what we learn is in retrospect, looking back. And a lot of the lessons that I learned was throughout my baseball career, uh, either from coaches or things that I've gone through or mentors or from uh, my parents or friends of parents. Um, and now it's now I get to look back and uh, I wrote about it in my book, but um, take all of these principles and lessons and now I get to apply it to to athletes. So as I share yeah. my story, I'll share I'll share uh, some of the lessons that I learned during it. So again, my 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 baseball story is kind of like no other. Meaning, I started late. I started when I was 14 years old. Yeah, I I started the summer after my eighth grade year, and to say that my first impression of baseball was awful would be an <laughs> understatement. <laughs> Mainly because I was I was terrible. Yeah, um, I was real bad. Like. Uh, I went over the entire season. Ooh. I didn't even I didn't even touch the baseball. Yeah, uh, I struck out every single at bat. Not even a foul tip. I struck <laughs> out every single at bat. Yeah, uh, the first the first ground ball that came to me in the outfield. I started left field my first game, and the first ground ball that was hit to me, I think it was third inning, uh, went right between my legs. Yeah, and <laughs> I, w- I was embarrassed, and I add on. I added on top of that. I got to the baseball, and I threw it to the wrong guy. I missed the cutoff guy. Yeah, and what should have been a single turned into a home run. Oh wow! Yeah, and the problem with it was <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking about fourteen years old kids make mistakes, but yeah. the problem was I-, I knew I was terrible. My teammates knew I was terrible. Uh, my parents knew I was terrible. Uh, and unfortunately, my coach knew I was terrible. After that moment, I was pulled from the game with no explanation. Yeah. Um, and for the rest of the season, my coach felt the need to lie to me and my parents about practice and game times just so I wouldn't show up. Wow. And after the season was over, after we broke out of the huddle for the last time together, he took me aside and uh, he put his arm around me like a loving, caring coach does. And he told me three words that stuck with me for the rest of my career. He said, you should quit. Wow. And he followed that up with, because I don't believe you have a future in baseball. And that's actually the first chapter of my book is you should quit. Yeah. Um, And that was the lesson was there's going to be people in your life who tell you that you're not going to be able to do what you want to do and people who are going to discount your dreams. But it's not even about you. It's about them. And they're just reflecting their unbelief. Yeah, on you. that's pretty amazing, though. I mean, you know, we've all dealt with our our own uh, bad coaches for for lack, you know, for whatever that might mean, you know, like you know, bad information or just whatever. But to to lie to a kid um, who's who's trying his best, who's new to the game, and to lie to a kid about practice times and stuff, and then to say something like that, um, yeah. you know, like you it really makes makes you feel like you should be have to pass some sort of screening. Uh, yeah. to, to be. Uh, a coach of people because again it's not you know obviously it's you're coaching the sport but you're you're coaching humans you know like you have such yes. an effect on on that person as a as a person going into yep. society because we know the majority of high school coaches are coaching kids who will never play in college and who'll never yep. play in, in, at the level after that and uh, that's just unfortunate to hear um yeah so and here's here's the thing you know, at 14 years old, I actually, I've never met, I've never met an athlete who doesn't want to impress his coach. Mm-hmm. So at 14 years old, to hear that from a coach who I desperately sought the approval of yep. was devastating. Yeah. 
And I, I have the great fortune of traveling and speaking and speaking at coaching conferences. And I finish my speech with the coaches with your athletes are going to remember you for the rest of your life. How do you want them to remember you? And for a lot of these athletes, myself included, these coaches have more influence on them than their own parents do. Yeah. So they need to be more careful with the words they say and the actions they take because it's impacting more than they think they are. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it needs to be checked. And like you said, there should be a screening process. And unfortunately, there's not. Yeah. Um, and, and you see this a lot and with a lot of the athletes I've worked with and the more athletes that I meet, athletes don't quit their sport. They quit their coaches. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's and funny, it's, you know, like we we uh, we obviously deal with with such uh, on the mechanical side of, of hitting and and throwing. But, you know, all of our, our and we were talking earlier about kind of how we got started because um, you had some questions for me and. It really comes, I think, out of that, uh, out of that seed, if you will, of coaches not of telling a player they can't do something. So when when a when a when a coach that you know a kid that we have comes in with a coach that says you're too small to hit home runs or you're too small to to uh, to hit to be a power hitter, you know, and yeah. and and, and <clears throat> just kind of putting that putting that you know, just that light out before the kid even has a chance. And you see guys yep. like Justin Pedroia and Jose Altuve and yep. Ichiro, and you see all these guys who aren't big, who, who, who for whatever reason, either didn't listen uh, to that coach or, or figured out a way to beat it, um, you know, yep. is, is how many more kids could have been like that. And, and out of that, I think, is a lot of our inspiration to teach kids how to hit the ball harder and things like that because the confidence that breeds – not only from the hitting side of things, but in life, like, you know, I, I'm, you know, this is, is much more important to us. Uh, what, seeing a kid walk in the building with confidence that yep. a year ago was not, wouldn't even look you in the eye. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's priceless. Yeah. That is priceless because again, uh, we like to, as coaches, we like to throw the word out potential a lot. Yeah. And we like to put labels on kids. Um, like you said, with Dustin Pedroia, um, I'm sure he was told at some point that he would never hit home runs, but luckily he's proved a lot of people wrong. Yeah. And the thing is, how do you define potential? You can't. Right. You have no idea what a kid is capable of. And I think it's, it's, it's a coach's responsibility to pull out of your kids who they are meant to become. Yep. And for, for a coach, so, so go from my eighth grade year being told that I should quit. The next year, I was introduced to one of the greatest coaches in all of baseball, uh, Coach Darren Everson. He's the minor league hitting coordinator for the Colorado Rockies now. Okay. And the reason, the reason why I believe he's the greatest coach is because he believed in me more than I believed in myself. Right. And he demanded more from me than I demanded from myself. And he took this uncoordinated, unconfident kid and, and transformed me into the All-American I was in college. But it yeah. came from him giving me chance after chance after chance after everyone else gave up on me. Yeah. And there's a, my first varsity start 
uh, I, I, I actually, I didn't tell you this, but I wanted to be a left-handed catcher. Uh, no. Again, yeah. <laughs> I, was ter- I was terrible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Everson had the care uh, and lovingly told me, hey, let's not be a catcher. Let's turn you into a pitcher. Right. And he continued to give me chance after chance. Even after my first start, I walked every single hitter I faced. Yeah. I didn't get a single out. And I wanted so badly to quit after that game. Yep. He didn't let me. And fast forward to my first varsity start, the same thing happens. I don't get a single out. I walk every hitter I face. And as he's pulling me from the game, I'm walking back to the dugout. Tears coming from my eyes. Yeah. And guess who's at the game to watch this whole disaster happen? My eighth grade coach. Eighth grade coach, about to say. <laughs> and I went in the dugout, put a towel over my head and, and cried. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think, you know, this is it. This is the end of my career. Uh, I should have listened to my eighth grade coach. I should have quit. And after that bus ride back home to our high school, uh, Coach Everson made me stay behind. And I was thinking, great, now he's going to punish me physically. But he didn't do that. Uh, instead, he had me throw a bullpen. And yeah. because I only threw about 30, 40 pitches that day. Mm-hmm. And before the bullpen started, he said, Riley, watching you pitch today was like watching paint dry. <laughs> he said, you took so long in between pitches that I actually timed you one time. It almost took you two full minutes wow. in between pitches to throw the next. And the more time you took, the more you overthought, the worse you got. Yep. So we're going to pick up the pace in this bullpen, and we're going to pitch the way I believe you can, your teammates believe you can, and I know deep down you believe you can. Yeah. And after every single pitch that bullpen, he was behind me screaming, <laughs> go again, again, <laughs> again. And he pulled me aside afterwards as we're walking out of the field house. And he said, I'm going to give you another chance this, this weekend. And he reiterated to me again, I want you to pitch the same way you just pulled pitch that bullpen. Yeah. In the same way, I believe you can pitch. And your teammates believe you can pitch. In that game, uh, the next game, the first, uh, the second game of the doubleheader that weekend, I got up on the mound and I threw first pitch, which was strike one. And (laughs) out of the bullpen or out of the dugout came a voice that yelled, get back up there. And it was Coach Eberson. So I, I scrambled back up to the mound and I threw strike two. And the same thing happens. Get back up there. Yeah. I get back on the mound. Throw strike three. The ball. They throw it around the infield. And as soon as I get the ball back, he yells it again. Get yeah. back up there. Yeah. And he does this for the rest of my start, <laughs> which was over a hundred pitches. That's a lot the of funny, goes. The funny thing is, uh, at the end of towards the end of the game, I wasn't the only one that was rushing to get to the next pitch. The other, the hitters on the other team were running up to home plate just so he wouldn't yell at them. <laughs> and, and because of his relentless belief in me from freshman year to junior year, I, and from one chance, my varsity start where I blew it, where I thought I blew it. And he gave me another chance. I went from not getting a single out to breaking the school record in strikeouts in a single game the next game. Wow. And that just goes to show you that it's amazing what happens to an athlete when they have a coach 
who believes in them and doesn't give up on them and cares about them as a person, not about what they produce for them on the field. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's because, just, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's good. I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, sometimes it just takes that right uh, framing or that right, uh, you know, I'm, just, I'm trying to think of the word for it, but just kind of like that coach obviously found your, the thing you needed. Obviously you needed to pitch and then he need, he saw where you needed to speed up your, your, your uh, delivery times and, and, and get back up there and do it again. Think less. And, uh, you know, some, like you said, and you said before we started today, like you just, you know, you, you just need that one guy to interject and, and find yep. out what you need to be to be your best. Yep. So I want to if, if you're a coach and you're listening to this, be Coach Everson. Don't be my eighth grade coach. Yeah. There's enough of those to go around. Oh, man. Be that one coach that changes your athletes lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because and of because of even to go further than this, because of his relentless belief, that game was a pivotal moment for me. That was like my one shining moment where I where I finally was confirmed that, OK, I do have a future in this game, even though I was told I didn't have a future in it three years prior. Right. And because of his relentless belief, I got a scholarship the next year to play in a junior college uh, in southern Illinois, even though I was told I should quit playing baseball the year before or three years before. And uh, I went on to another junior college after a terrible experience. Yeah. My first one. And I played at NIAC, uh, North Iowa Area Community College. Yep. With a coach by the name of Coach Todd Rima and Coach Travis Hergert, who's the head coach there now. Okay. And again, to go from my freshman coach, uh, which was a terrible experience, to another coach in Travis Herger and Todd Rima, who believed in me and demanded more from me, it changed my college career. Yeah, which then led me to go to Whitewater, and I let I met another great coach in Coach John Bodenlich, who pulled out of me what I didn't think was possible, and yeah. that was finally becoming an All-American and finally taking uh, my level of baseball to another level, mm-hmm. a level I didn't believe was possible. Right. Right. And so tell me about that All-American year, man. Was that, uh, was it just everything was rolling or did you eat better or what happened? So I'll have to, I have to take you back the year before. So my first year at Whitewater, um, I transferred into Whitewater Division Three, thinking, and I'm transferring from a Division One junior college, thinking that I'm going to dominate because this is a Division Three, you know. And I was dead wrong. And after the first practice, I realized that very quickly because um, I was surrounded by a whole bunch of Goliaths. <laughs> See, in in Wisconsin, there's not many Division One baseball teams, so a lot of guys. There's only one in UW Milwaukee. Right. And a lot of guys travel out of state to go play baseball at a Division One level. They get homesick or the fact that it costs more to go out of state in yeah. a, uh, uh, for a Division One scholarship than it would be to stay in state to go to the, one of these D3 schools. And they transfer back to Wisconsin. So these Wisconsin rosters uh, in the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference are filled with Division One talent. And a lot of former player of the years and all staters and all these things. So I got back to practice and I'm next to a guy that goes 32nd round next year. And then I'm followed by another guy who gets drafted, throws 96 miles an hour. It's just like I was dead wrong. So right. fast forward 
through the fall season, through winter workouts, we finally start spring season. And mind you, Division Three, you're not guaranteed a roster spot at all. Right. So I have to fight for a spot on the roster. And the first practice of the spring season, I jump up, literally the fifth throw of the practice. I jump up to grab a baseball because my partner overthrew me. And as I was coming back down, a baseball rolled underneath me. Oh, no. And I rolled my ankle on top of it, busted it. You can hear two pops that day, the pop of the gloves, and then the pop of my ankle echo throughout the field house. And that was another pivotal moment for me was, do I let this defeat me or do I find a way to make it through this and find a spot on the roster? And what should have taken 12 weeks to recover, I was on the mound game one in five weeks. Wow. And I rushed. You know, I probably rushed back too early. Yeah. Uh, actually, I definitely rushed back too early. Uh, <laughs> and my performance suffered because of it. I threw four pitches my first outing, and three of them were doubles, and one was a home run. <laughs> and the rest of my appearances that year were very much the same. And I was kind of faced with the decision of how am I going to respond to this? Because one of the greatest lessons sports particularly baseball teaches us about life is that it's not about what happens to us. It's about how we respond to what happens to us. And that summer I read a book called mind gym by Gary Mack. Mm -hmm. I strongly recommend it for every athlete to read. And I, it helped me with a lot of the fears I had fear of failing in front of my coaches and my teammates, fear of pitching in front of large crowds Mm -hmm. um, and in front of scouts And I came back, I pitched 13 innings the year before. And the next year I lead the entire NCAA in victories and I win, I win 13 games Yeah, and I get pitcher of the year, all American among several other awards. And it was because there was a moment in my first year at Whitewater where I got trapped in what I like to call the complaining trap. I wasn't getting playing time, uh, and my attitude suffered because of it. I found myself at the end of the dugout next to all of the other complainers, (laughs) complaining about playing time, judging all of the other players on the field and how much better we were than them, talking about Coach Vo and that he didn't know what he was doing and that he's overlooking us. And I would actually sit at the other end of the dugout, and I I would pray that he wouldn't call my name. Yeah. that I wouldn't pitch, especially in situations where a relief pitcher was needed. And I fell into this trap mm-hmm. because I was low on the depth chart and I thought, no way he would call my name. And guess what happened? He called my name mm-hmm. and I wasn't ready. Yep. And that game, after that poor performance, I got a phone call just like I did after every single game I pitched in. And it was from Coach Everson. Mm. And I started, co- I started complaining to him about my playing time, about Coach Vo, yada, yada, yada. And he stops me in the middle of complaining. He says, Riley, losers complain. Champions contribute. Yep. And I was like, how do I contribute? I'm not playing. Coach Vo doesn't even watch me during practice. He doesn't even watch my bullpens. He doesn't even care about me. And he goes, stop. Find a way to contribute. Mm-hmm. And that's how you prepare for your games. Yeah. Yeah, he said, I want you to I want you to prepare for every single game as if you're going to start. Yeah. 
I don't care if your name is not on the lineup. I want you to prepare for every single game like you're going to start. And we started talking. I had a massive routine in high school where it was meticulous to a T. I knew exactly what I was doing minute by minute. Mm -hmm. And I did the same exact thing, brushed the same amount of teeth, listened to the (laughs) same songs. I mean, it was meticulous. Definitely OCD, but it was meticulous. Yeah. And a lot of my success was attributed to that. And I got away from it in college. And he said, I want you to go right back to that routine. Yeah. And this was this chapter in my book is called Scrubbing Bubbles because I would clean my cleats and my turf shoes with scrubbing bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> and I did this before every single game. Yeah. And so that weekend, I cleaned all of my cleats. We were playing our rival, uh, Stevens Point. And I cleaned my cleats after every before every single game like I was going to start. I didn't pitch a single inning that weekend, but I continued to clean my cleats, continued to uh, prepare for each game as if I was going to start. And guess what happened? The next week, Coach Vo pulls me aside and does something he normally never did, and he told me, hey, Riley, you're going to start the midweek game this week. And sure enough, I pitched, and I threw one of the best games of my career and it taught me a valuable lesson prepare for the moment yeah so when the moment comes you're ready and you don't have to get ready because when that moment comes it's too late to prepare and all it takes is one yes yes all it takes is one and from that moment on i continued to pitch at a fast pace i continued to prepare for every single game as if i was going to start and Sure enough, again, I went from pitching 13 innings to winning 13 games yeah. the next year. And a lot of it has to do with preparation, and a lot of it has to do with the belief from Coach Everson. Right, right. And I think that the other thing to take out of that, too, is, um, you know, it's very easy to, to fall into that, that trap of, you know, everything is – is wrong with everything else besides me, you know, like I, yep. it's, it's someone else, it's something else. It's, it's, you know, there's always this external thing to, to place it on. And coaches notice that, you know, like they, they, they know, they, they, they see, um, they, they see your demeanor. They see you at the yep. end of the bench. They see you with the other guys who are <laughs> like that. And, um, if, if you're wanting that opportunity, then, then you have to, you have to make that opportunity, something that you look like you want, I think. And, and, you know, regardless, you can't make the lineup, but, you know, you can do things. Like you said, you can contribute. You can be, be at practice. And I don't mean like be physically at practice. Of course you got to physically be at practice, but there's a lot of guys that I played with growing up and in college and a lot of kids that I work with um, that, you know, they, they, they don't know how to be there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They, they, they either have a bad demeanor uh, slouchy, don't talk much, you know, and so part of it is too not only the like the skill side of things, but but the the you know walking upright with your chest up a little bit, yep. you know, looking coaches in the eye, being at practice, and yep. you are so much more likely to get an opportunity, even if maybe you're not the most skilled player, and you never know what that might lead to because it might lead to that best pitching you know outing of your career, or that maybe maybe you get that pinch hit opportunity yep. and and you hit a double and then. I mean, that, that just, that just gets the ball rolling. Yeah. And then, you know, an example of this I I didn't talk about was I did something 
my my first year at Whitewater, I was so afraid to make mistakes in practice in yeah. front of the coach yeah. that I would I would sneak to the back of the lines, whether we were doing bunk coverages, first and thirds, uh, whatever. Whatever yeah. we were doing, I would always sneak to the back of the line, hoping that I would just, you know, maybe get one or two chances yeah. to do it. And yeah. then we would just move on to the next. Yeah. And I would think I was thinking I did this because I thought you know, I'm reducing my chance to fail, but really I'm actually increasing my chance to fail because I'm taking away opportunities to get better at the things that I needed to get better at. Yeah. And the next year, uh, I, I called, I, I, there's a section in my uh, book called get, uh, get to the front of the line. And the next year I made it a point, no matter what we were doing to get to the front of the line of whatever we were doing, whether it was, Again, first and thirds, bunk coverage, I was always at the front because I wanted to show coach that I was a leader and I wanted to show coach that I do want to get better at this stuff. Right. And ultimately, it was for me to get better. Yeah. And it changed my demeanor. It changed my posture. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the success I had as well. You know, a lot of athletes are saying, give me playing time and I will show you. But coaches are saying, show me. Yeah, and I will give you. I will give you playing time. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you get to college, and I, I, you know, you everybody runs into this. Like you know, most guys who are in college were you know the best pitcher on their high school team, or the yep. best, you know the best player, best one or two players on their high school team. And you get to college, and everybody's that same dude. Everybody was yep. the best player on their high school team. You don't. You don't. You haven't. You know. You, you're not guaranteed anything. Yes. Yeah, and it, it's it's funny because. Uh, you say that, and and this was this was the crazy thing. So going from my All American season, I went back in the fall, and that was the mentality I had for practice. Yeah, I just had the I just led the entire NCAA in victories, and in my mind, I was still fighting for a roster spot on yep. the team. Right, because I knew nothing was guaranteed. Yeah. And that's, and, you know, a lot of times that coaches do a good job of setting up that kind of culture. Um, and it, what it, I think what it really does is it, it, it for, for the guys who don't maybe play a lot, um, it keeps them involved knowing that they, that nobody is guaranteed a spot or a spot in the lineup every year. You have to come back every fall and earn it. And, yeah. uh, and that's uh, such a by culture, I think, of good, of healthy competition and, um, you know, the ability to, to earn your way into a spot. Um, yep. So take us, um, you know, take us from, from college and, uh, and kind of where things, you know, where things went after that and, and kind of the, the bridge to where you are now. So this is a perfect segue because the first weekend I came back to school at uh, my senior year, I was approached by one of our legendary coaches, uh, former Whitewater Warhawk coach, uh, coach Jim Miller, uh, rest his soul. Uh, he passed away a few years ago because of cancer, mm. but, uh, he stopped me in the hallway and he talked to me about what I wanted to accomplish my senior year. And he told me that Riley all American season. I was also an all-star in the Northwoods league. These are all great feats, but what you do afterwards is what matters the most. And the thing is you have a huge target on your back now. Mm -hmm. And do you know how you beat them? By outworking them. And this was good and bad because because of this conversation, I put a ton of pressure on myself to yeah. be perfect, to, you know, 
repeat the same performance I had my junior year. Right. And uh, this pressure became worse and worse. I also had the pressure of being a captain of the team. Yep. And getting a group of 50 guys on my side. Yeah. And listening to what I, what I had to say. And this pressure, again, got worse and worse and worse to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. Depression set in and I was also living by myself. And I think anybody knows that anybody with depression, uh, isolation is the worst thing that you want to do. Right. And, uh, this depression just kind of snowballed out of control. And my first year, from the first day of winter break, I was driving back to the house I grew up in and suicidal thoughts took over. And I thought that, you know, if, if I just swerve into a semi truck or I just drive my car into a tree, all of this could end. Mm -hmm. And it was around midnight that night. And I sat at the intersection of two highways and I sat there for what felt like an eternity waiting for a semi truck to come. Yeah. And uh, when fun finally did, as it got closer and closer, I started closing my eyes and I uh, let go of the brake and I rolled out into the highway and I braced for impact and what felt like five very, very, very long seconds. Yeah. Uh, I opened my eyes and I realized I didn't get hit and I turned to the left where the semi truck was coming from and uh, he was about 20 yards away from me at a dead stop honking his horn at me. And uh, I was so embarrassed. I peeled off the highway and I uh, never told anyone about that yeah. night. Because in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, I'm the captain of the team. I'm the All-American. I'm the one everyone looks up to. Yeah. I can't let anybody know that I'm weak or that I'm struggling. But on the inside, I was screaming for help. And I lived with this the rest of my senior season. Mm -hmm. It didn't get better. It got worse. Especially when my escape, my base, the my baseball career, was taken away from me, uh, I went from one of the best weeks of my life, uh, leading my team to the College World Series, mm -hmm. winning a whole bunch of other awards like All American, again, to one of the worst weeks of my life, losing to a team I should have beat, and all of the phone calls, letters, messages from pro scouts wanting me to play and sign with them stopped. Hmm. And I was left wondering why. Yeah. And I spiraled out of control quickly. I went into an identity crisis because all I was was a baseball player. Yeah. And my dream was to become a baseball, a professional baseball player. And I dedicated my entire teenage and young adult life to doing this. Yeah. And it didn't happen. And worse yet, Teammates that I played with in the Northwoods League, many guys who are now in the major leagues, I was striking out and getting out. Yeah. And I was, and some of these teammates that I had who I thought I was better than were getting chances that I wasn't. And I didn't understand why. Yeah. So instead of dealing with this issue, I distracted myself. Fortunately, I was good in school. I got accepted into grad school at Baylor University where I studied sports pedagogy which is a fancy word for coaching. Yeah, uh, It's the art and science of teaching sports skills. And I had the emphasis in sports psychology because of the book, Mind Gym. Mm -hmm. I got infatuated with learning from the best players and learning what their habits are, learning what their routine is, 
learning what their mindset is, learning all of the things that made them successful. And as I was continuing to distract myself as a strength coach, also with the football team there, this problem, this identity crisis got worse. And I ended up actually a couple weeks before winter break at Baylor, I ended up trying to take my own life again. And I thought I turned my phone off. And to my surprise, my phone rang literally seconds before I pulled the trigger. Mm. And I answered. And it was one of my former teammates who had just flown into DFW. And his flight got canceled. So he needed a place to stay in Waco, where Baylor is, is only mm -hmm. an hour south of Dallas. Yeah. And he thought it was a good opportunity to see me. And I couldn't make up words because I was I was distraught. Yeah. And he stayed on the phone with me for that hour drive until he got back down to Waco. And he stayed with me for a few days to make sure that I was okay. Yeah. But again, I didn't necessarily address the issue. This was all just covering it up. Sure. And reassurance that I wasn't alone. But as soon as he left, it got worse again. Yeah. I graduated. I, I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this identity crisis continued to happen. I continued to think, why am I not playing baseball? What is going on? Especially being left-handed. The worst thing I heard all of the time was, oh, yeah, they really need left-handed pitchers. Oh, really? Why aren't <laughs> they calling me then? Right, right. So this got worse and worse and worse. And finally, about two years at, or a year and a half after I graduated, I decided this time I'm going to take it serious. You know, I'm going to plan this all out. I'm going to plan the day that I do it. I'm going to plan how I do it. I even wrote a suicide note. I said all my goodbyes. And on the day that I plan on committing suicide, I get a phone call again from a mentor of mine whom I hadn't talked to in a few years. And I answered thinking it would be the last time I'd ever talk to him. Mm -hmm. And thank God I did because he saved my life. And when he asked me how I was doing, he refused to accept my response of, I'm doing fine. He continued yeah. to ask me, no, really, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? He asked me probably 10, 15 times till I finally told him what was really going on. And he yeah. called me. He continued. He stayed on the phone with me until I promised that I wouldn't do it. And then he continued to call me every hour on the hour for the next couple of days. And during these conversations, he continued to pour truth over me and continue to kind of counsel me through this, uh, this, this crisis. And right. out of these conversations, uh, something came out that changed my life forever. He said, Riley, there is purpose in our pain. You may not see it right now, but there is. We don't go through what we go through for ourselves. We go through what we go through so we can help others who are going to go through the same thing. Right. Now, he was right. At the time, I didn't know what that meant because I was literally in the darkest period of my life where I felt like I was drowning every single day. Yeah. No matter how much I prayed, no matter how much I got around people that I loved, it didn't get any better. And something else also came out of these conversations. He told me to write in a journal about my entire baseball career from start to finish every little detail of it, every story of it, no matter how embarrassing or humiliating it was, he told me to write about it because up until that point, I put baseball away because I got real bitter towards baseball. Sure. 
I wanted nothing to do with it. It broke my heart. Yeah. And sent me down this path to almost literally destruction. Yeah. And I couldn't go to games because I didn't want to know what it was like to sit on the other side of the fence. So I put it away hoping that it would just go away, but it didn't. And I started writing in this journal. We decided that I was going to write a page a day for a year. And every single day he would text me at 8 a.m. saying, did you write today? Did you write today? Did you write today? And as I started writing more and more, um, I began to heal. Yeah. Of course, there was days where I was writing where I literally couldn't see what was in front of me because my eyes were filled with tears. Yeah. And one other thing happened. I started meeting other athletes, particularly former professional athletes, who were struggling with the same things. Identity crisis, not knowing what to do with life after sports, depression. Yeah. And some of the stories I heard were heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking. And I became so discontented by it that I felt like somebody's got to do something about this because clearly this is an issue. Yeah. And I told my mentor this. And he started laughing at me and he said, Riley, you remember that? You remember one of those conversations we had about purpose and pain? He goes, this is a great indication that you're someone to do something about this. Yep. So my journal turned into a book. And that's my book now, Pitching Against Myself. And it it changed from my story, how I went from bench warmer being told that I should quit to becoming an All-American, All-Star in the Northwoods League. And also on top of that, is the book that I wish I would have read when I was playing. And at the end of each chapter, there's a section in each chapter called Knowledge Applied because Knowledge Applied to me is wisdom, which Mm -hmm. is the greatest thing we could ever accomplish or get. And in these Knowledge Applied sections are the life lessons that I learned during this chapter of my life and how it's applied to my life after baseball and how it can apply to you as well. Right. And I got done. So the text message has actually changed. It, it changed from it changed from have you written today or did you write today to create what you wish existed? Because I don't know any other books that are helping athletes transi- transition out of sports. I don't yeah, know I any other. Any. I don't know any other programs, mentorship programs that are helping athletes through their grievance process because they say athletes die twice when their sports career ends and when they actually die. And yep. I know this because I lived through this. I don't know any programs that offer this. Why do so you think that is? Do you think that uh, on top of my head, I'm just thinking, you know, there are so few. I mean, you know, obviously you see the statistics about the number of, of total baseball players at the youth level that, that make it to college, I think, it, and, and play. It's like like two percent or you know it's some yeah. really low and then even lower you know go from go from the next level to the next level i mean you think it's just because yeah. there are just so few um athletes that that are dedicated to where they they start to have these identification problems or i mean what are your thoughts on that i think it's because we put athletes on a pedestal right i think we put them on this pedestal and we think that because they have this great physical gift that not many people get. Like you said, 2% of high school and youth athletes go on to play in college. And then 2% of the college athletes go on to play pro. Yeah. So these athletes, particularly elite level athletes, are put up on this pedestal because they think, we think that because they have millions of dollars and because they have every resource imaginable to us, that there's no possible way that they could have problems. So we write them off. 
And then we, we get shocked when Kevin Love comes out with an article talking about how he struggles with anxiety. Yeah. And we get shocked when Junior Seau commits suicide. Yeah. You know, things like this. And it's like, no way. There's, po- there's no possible way this could happen. How could you do this? You had everything. You had everything everybody ever wants. Yeah. And the truth is, uh, it's, it's the, the things we compare ourselves to with them is just not true. Money is not the answer. Fame is not the answer. Followers on social media is not the answer. Athletic gifts are not the answer. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really sad. And, and a lot of the times we talked about this earlier, when we have a problem, we like to internalize it and exaggerate it. So again, we think that we're the only ones going through what we're going through. And it's just not true. I have had the pleasure of working with several great athletes, many of whom you probably know about. And I can promise you that they deal with the same things we deal with, but we, we don't see athletes as real people with real problems because we're too busy putting them on a pedestal. Right. I've worked with a former Heisman Trophy winner who struggles with self-worth. We're talking about the, we're talking about the best college football player in the country. Mm-hmm. And he struggles with self-worth because his de- he, he feels like nothing he does is good enough for his father. Right. I work with an all-pro athlete who just signed a contract with well over $100 million. He has an entourage of five to ten people around him at all times. And he struggles with loneliness. Yeah. Because he keeps everybody at a distance. Because he thinks that if they knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. Yep. And I think too, like the 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 confidence that athletes, especially high high level athletes, put out um, can be. I don't know about misleading. I think they are very confident in what they do, uh, but uh, there's there's another side of them that is maybe fearful that they're not as confident in in other things, whether it be relationships or. Um, or anything really at that point. And, and so they hide behind their, their sports confidence. Correct. Um, and the other thing too is they know. They know they're getting put up on a pedestal. Right. They know that hundreds of thousands of millions of people are depending on them to perform at a high level, almost to perfection. So if anything pulls them away from that, like mental health issues, like struggling with fear, struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression – they don't want people to perceive them as weak. Right. They don't want people to perceive them as vulnerable. Right. Because it takes away their quote unquote strength. But there's a whole lot of strength in vulnerability. It takes a hell of a lot of courage to tell people what's really going on. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. And that's what, you know, there's so many, uh, there's, you're starting to see more resources like that. Obviously, you brought up Kevin Love and, you know, what he kind of did. And, and did he write in the Players Tribune? Is that where he, he wrote about it? Yeah, and then uh, yeah. this week, Baron Davis came yeah. out and said on ESPN, he said, I guarantee there's a lot more guys in the NBA who are struggling with depression than we realize. Right, and it's a very snap thing to say. I think a lot of people would say, oh, well, you know, Kevin Love has millions of dollars and a big home and all this stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's people with anxiety and stuff, they don't – it's not a choice. Uh, you yeah. know, it's it's very much a a, um, a disease of, some, of sorts that – is uh, not by any means what they want, and uh, and they have to deal with it. And obviously, yeah. basketball is an, is an escape for Kevin Love, just like uh, other sports is an escape for uh, those types of people. But yep. but even more so for those of us uh, or those people who 
who didn't make it to that level, who still you know put themselves up in that on that same pedestal, who don't have yep. the, the sports to still rely on. Um, you know, I was telling you about an example uh, from my life that that just recently affected me and uh, one of my best friends, uh, unfortunately, um, succumbed to that. And uh, you know, you just don't know because they they like you said and we talked about it like they don't reach out. Um, and, and sometimes it, whether it be fate or something interjects and, and keeps stuff from happening, um, yeah. you just have to, I think, you know, part of it is the education, like we're talking about the, yep. the knowledge, the awareness that it's, it's a real thing. And just because yes. someone seems like they have their stuff together and they're really confident about what they do, you, you know, it's okay to ask them how they are and it's okay yes. to, to, to really talk about it. And there is no, and if you're listening, you know, and we'll get into some of this stuff here in a second, but uh, that there, you know, we got to make it, we got to make it known that it's not a problem or it's not uh, weak or shameful to yeah. to admit it and, and to talk about it. Well, and the thing is, because we're not talking about it, this is getting worse. Like this is a serious problem and it's getting worse. Right. And they just came, a study that was done in 2016 just came kind of surfacing, uh, came to the surface. And it was a it was a study done. I think it was a poll done among uh, collegiate athletes, and they found that thirty seven point eight percent, some or something around that number, uh, of female athletes or female track and field athletes struggle with clinical depression. Then thirty percent uh, women's softball. Then thirty percent uh, women's soccer, and then trickles down to seventeen percent uh, baseball players. So if you take, there's millions of baseball players. Let's say one, one million, let's, let's do a study. One million baseball players. They just did this poll on. You're telling me that 170,000 of them struggle with clinical depression. And this yeah. was done in 2016. I guarantee it's worse now. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, how many, and we were talking about this, you know, how many of them actually admit it? Yeah, that was the que- yeah, that was the question that that uh popped up in my head was how many of them actually admitted the truth or or maybe even know it. Yeah. Right? That's I mean, a, that that's great. Yeah. I mean, how how many I mean, cuz obviously with your own experiences, like how many people are actually going through it but but have no no way to identify it because it's not talked about. Yeah. Yep. And oftentimes it's pushed aside because again, even not with athletes uh, we have this stigma attached to mental health and particularly with youth because we think that because they don't know what the real world is like, quote unquote, that there's no possible way that they could have real problems. And that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It is super unfortunate that, you know, I, or maybe even sad. I don't, I don't know what the right word to describe it is. I don't want to do it. Uh, in any it's adjustment. heartbreaking. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, because it's, it's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, that, and, and it can happen at any level. Like you said, like you don't have to be, you know, a lot of I mean, I remember growing up with kids that played baseball even before I did um, that loved it maybe even more than I did. And then just maybe the physical uh, abilities wore, wore off or what have you that that dealt with it and then had to go in, you know, had to stop playing in high school and yeah. or whatever that dealt with it. So, I mean, it's just the, I, I just think that the, there, there is no telling uh, how many people it affects uh, on a day-to-day basis. And, yeah. um, you know, until people start talking about it and just like right. any other issue, then, then no one's going to, 
to, there's never going to be any way, any, any reason for people to reach out on their own because they feel right. so bad about it. Yeah. And the, and the, the other thing too, is we are so, we are so busy comparing our, ourselves to other people and we are so busy assuming things of other people. We truly don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Oh yeah. All of us, all of us struggle with something. I'm not oh talking God. about minor things. I'm talking about major things. All of us. There's not a single person I have met that is not struggling with something. So if if I I, I just think connection is the answer. Yeah. In I mean, some sort of way. I wish I had the answer. And all of these athletes could be freed of all of these things, but I don't. But I do think connection is the answer. And I think even reaching out, you know, oftentimes we say, I wish they would have reached out for help, but I can tell you from personal experience that the last thing I wanted to do in the darkest period of my life was reach out for help. I right. felt like I was paralyzed. And it was because two people reached out to me at perfect times. My life was saved. Right. And today so I'm, I'm encouraging you. If you're listening to this right now, reach out to the strong person. Yeah. Reach out to the person who portrays themselves that has an, of having it all figured out. Yeah. Reach out to the person who you, you, who you used to see a lot, but is now not around anymore. Yeah. Reach out to that person and just have a conversation. Well, I think today, man, too, like, and, and we talked, we hit on it briefly. I mean, today's society with social media, uh, the, the hot, you know, the Facebooks and the Instagrams, you know, the highlight reel uh, yes. type stuff is, is just because of, you know, what we talked about, the, the, the number of people. And, and it's just, an, it just, this is, it's just like an, another exclamation point because the, you know, we all look at Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and what do you, you mean? You all, you all, you put as the good things. And this is, this is, yep. this, this goes into a whole nother topic that we, we, you and I could probably go on about <laughs> for, for a day and yeah. uh, for straight. But, um, you know, we, we only put up the things that we want yep. people to see. And then you well, start that, comparing it, yourself to that person and it's, yes. it's, it's not good. And you hit it on the head. We're comparing our behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels. Yeah. We're comparing our lives to an illusion. We think that because, you know, our friends post perfect pictures with their spouses and their children, that everything is perfect all of the time. Yeah. And it's not, that's not true. That no. is just not true. No. And it's, it, this, this cycle is getting uh, repeated over and over and over again. And you're seeing it develop, especially among youth. Yeah. They're trying to portray themselves as having, as having it all figured out. They're portraying one life on Instagram, but living a completely different one behind closed doors. And this connection is getting lost. They did a study recently about loneliness. And they, they, studied, they, they pulled each, or each age group, you know, millennials, uh, Generation Z, which is the high schoolers coming up. Um, and then, you know, baby boomers and then geriatrics and, and so on and so forth. And they found that the high school kids, kids, kids ages 14 to 18, struggle with loneliness the most. Yeah. More than the geriatrics. Yeah. I can see that. And, yeah. And like, I mean, yeah, I, can, I we can, like you said, we can go on and on and on about this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, depression is on an all time high. Suicide is raising or is rising at a significant rate. Yeah. In the past five years, do you know which age demographic has had the most significant rise in suicide? 
Well, I think just going off what you said, it's got to be late teens, early 20s, maybe. Girls ages 10 to 14. Get out of here. It nearly tripled in five years. Ah, geez. Wow. And the problem is we we don't know how to regulate it. Right. We don't know how to regulate Instagram. But I'm telling you, parents, get on who your kids are following. Yeah. I would just take away social media altogether. And I know there's parents thinking, yeah, good luck trying to do that. <laughs> but re- you can ab- you pay the bills. Yeah. You can absolutely regulate who they're following, what they're doing on social media. You can absolutely get rid of Snapchat because I promise you Snapchat causes more harm than good. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, we were talking about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I had all these questions prepared and uh, we've gotten into some stuff way better than the questions I prepared. <laughs> but I kept coming back um, to this one word that my dad always taught me. And and that word is balance. Um, mm. It was something that, you know, when you're <laughs> when you're a young, a young kid or, you know, and, or a teenager, or, you know, you, and your dad's or your mom's or whoever is in that, that person for you has that that phrase or that thing that they tell you to, to kind of live by it's uh, you know, you, you don't really take it at, at, at full because obviously you're a teenager um, and what do older people know, you know? Um, yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, but it comes back. I, I just, I think about that word all the time now, you know, I'm a father now just recently uh, and um, you know, I've been married for a couple of years now and I'm, I'm kind of in it and, you know, I always come back to that word, whether it be a work thing, you know, I'm working all these hours or, um, you know, I can think back to uh, being a kid and, and things like that. And I think it comes back to balance. I think there's a way to do it um, that doesn't, that's a healthy way, you know, because obviously Instagram and, yes. and and Facebook can be a very healthy thing and, and they can really be avenues um, for some, um, for, for help. I mean, my wife and I just went, went through uh, some stuff over the last year that she, where she used Instagram to uh to to reach out and and she's you know and and she would hear this and not be not have a problem with it because she's been an advocate for some of the stuff that she had to go through for for same people because there was no avenue um for for reaching out so there's just got to be a balance i think and and understanding as a as a person as a parent raising a younger person uh to help them with that right i mean yeah i mean you nailed it on the head uh social media is a great tool for connection um or I should say for communication. Yep. I mean, the fact that I'm here is because of social media. Yep. And, but it's a double-edged sword. Right. The same thing that can be used for communication can be used for destruction. And more often than not, right. more often than not. So. Well, it, that's it, where yeah. parent. I think, you know, you, and you said it, that's where parenting comes in. Yeah. You have to, you have to be on it. Um, so, you know, I guess. So now here we are now. We, we've identified it. We've talked about it. We know the numbers. We know that uh, it's a scary thing. So yeah. what can we do? Like, you know, obviously you're going around, uh, you know, if, if you do follow Riley, which you definitely should on Twitter and Instagram, uh, you're just continuously putting up positive enforcement, positive thoughts, good vibes. Uh, even some of your, I uh, saw a couple of your videos where you're sitting down, at, you know, you're standing up in front of a bunch of kids. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, what are, what, what do you, what can we do? Well, I think, so here's, here's the thing. Um, there's a number of different things. I think, I think big time is teaching your kids who they are 
and where their value comes from. Right. And that performance, looks, grades, all of these things don't affect that. And that's hard, especially in the society we live in. But, yeah. I, you know, to go back, I finished, I, this ties in beautifully with the end of my book. Um, I, I finished my book about two years ago and I put it off because I was terrified of it. Sure. Because I, I'm incredibly vulnerable and yeah, transparent in it. Um, and I'm sharing stories that I've never shared with anybody. Yeah. And that terrified me. It also, also what terrified me was the magnitude that I believe it has. And I was on vacation about two year, about a year and a half ago in Los Angeles, California. And I met a woman there and, you know, I, I started telling her about my story. I just opened up to her. I don't know why I felt the need to mm -hmm. Told her about my story, told her about my baseball career, told her about my struggles with depression and suicide, told her about this book that I wrote, told her about this mentorship program that I wanted to create. And at the time I was a strength and conditioning coach still. And I was on the edge of, you know, deciding, do I take this leap of faith and finish this book, publish this book and start this mentorship program? Or do I stay with doing something that I'm really good at? And I've had a lot of success at. Right. And after, while I was talking to this woman, she starts crying. And I said, uh, you know, it made me uncomfortable because I didn't want her to cry. <laughs> and I was like, what? why are you crying, ma'am? Uh, and she said, you remind me of my son. He was a baseball player. And I said, was? She goes, yeah, he pitched in the minor leagues. And unfortunately, uh, when he hurt his shoulder, the team released him. And that was the end of his career and the end of his life. Oh, boy. And uh, uh, unfortunately, a couple weeks after his release, he decided to commit suicide. And he wrote a suicide note. And on the note, it said, I am a baseball player. All I know is baseball. I don't want to be anyone else. And I don't want to know anything else. Yeah. And... I start crying. We finish our conversation. I'm walking away and she turns to me and goes, my son needed to read your book. Yeah. And he needed to be a part of your mentorship program. Yeah. So needless to say, I finished my book after that. And as I was finishing in every book at the beginning of each chapter, there's usually drop caps, which are those big letters at the beginning. It's the first letter of each chapter. Mm -hmm. And I was going back through the book and as I was editing and finalizing and I have 20 chapters in my book and the drop caps spelled out, literally spelled out. I am more than an athlete. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and that became the message. And now I get a chance because I knew what I was going to do. I knew I had to do something. I knew the why I knew, I knew that I believe in a future where every athlete understands that sports don't define who they are. But I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what that message was. Right. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then all of a sudden that came up. I am more than an athlete. So I wrote an another chapter, my conclusion, and I wrote in there, you are more than an athlete. You are more than anything you have done, are doing, and ever will do. Your sport does not define who you are. Your performance on the field does not define who you are. And now I get a chance to go and share this. And say things like you are more and there's more to life 
than the sport that you are playing. And the funny thing is, I deal with a lot of coaches, you know, quote unquote old school, who think that by me telling this message, it's going to pull away from the focus of the athlete, but it actually does the opposite. Because I've worked with several athletes who finally start to get it, who finally the conversation shift from the fears and anxiousness that they have on the field to how do I become a better father? Mm-hmm. How do I become a better husband? And all of a sudden they're starting to play with freedom. Yeah. And they actually get to utilize the gifts they've been given to their maximum capacity. Right. And that was one of the questions I had uh, or one of the topics that I had was so many players. And, and it's funny that you were talking about girls earlier in your statistic because I see it most in girls yeah. um, is, is, is the fear like the, 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 the fear based, uh, you know, the anxiety that they have put on themselves, um, you know, and just kind of like we, like we were talking about society today and, and kind of the, you know, all of a sudden now when we get them, to, and it's funny how hitting a, a baseball or softball can help with this. Um, but it, it's, we're, I think we're fighting the same thing in, in slightly different ways, but you know, that, that all of a sudden you see them start to play the game with that, with that freedom and that lack of fear. And, and it, it's much more of a go get them attitude and they start walking differently. Like we talked about and talking differently and, and they have a voice and they're, they're it's just so much different. And then, and then really that's where the, the pleasure and what I do comes from. It's not that if uh, my goal is not to get every hitter that I work with to the major leagues, uh, cause you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, right. But when you see that kid who was the shy little kid who didn't want to speak or who, yep. uh, who thought they weren't that good before or whatever thought it was happy, you know, they thought they were just going to be okay. Uh, really just show that, that confidence and, is, is something special. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I guess, you know, what would be, if you're a player, I guess, uh, and I'm not saying somebody who might be as, uh, what, what are some tools that, that from your own experience, obviously that got to a certain point, what are some things that looking back that you could have done, uh, obviously the identification of it, but yeah. you know, or before it got to the point where you got to, what, what are some things that, that you, that you wish you could have done before? Oh, that's a great question, JK. That's a real great question. Uh, I'm gonna have to dive deep for this. Um, and you, I guess there's a chance you don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, yeah. it's such a tough question. I know. Um, um, but I just, you know, I think like you said, like I was talking about, I, I want, I, I wish there could be something that could, right. could be like this uh, red flag that goes up when, when you start maybe right. doing something that is unhealthy, it's just to avoid that, that going down that hill if you, if you can't. Yeah, I think a lot of it too, you know, we talked about this earlier. Uh, I've never met an athlete who isn't trying to impress his coach. Right. And it, I think that even goes into, I don't, I don't know a child who isn't trying to impress their parent. Sure. Um, you know, I, just to share a story about one of my athletes, I have a athlete who was a second round draft pick uh, in the MLB draft at 18 years old, out of high school, was given a million and a half dollars. Uh, we're $1.5 million out of high school Mm -hmm. and his first season, he has Tommy John and he's been kind of trying to make his way back ever since. And he comes to me because, you know, in, in bullpens, he's lights out. I mean, he has major league stuff. He is six foot four, throws a hundred, can touch a hundred miles an hour, has a devastating breaking ball. But when he goes out onto the mound in a game, he's a completely different pitcher. Mm-hmm. 
so he comes to me with this performance issue and knowing what I know now, I know that no matter what we do, visualization, goal setting, breathing techniques, things like that, uh, we're just treating symptoms. Right. If we don't get to the root cause of the issue, why are you having this performance anxiety? If I don't get to the root cause of that, you're going to continue to have it over and over and over again. So right. until we get become aware of where it's coming from. So knowing that I've been in his situation where I went onto the mound and I was almost like I was paralyzed by anxiety, especially when I was pitching in front of a large crowd. So I asked him, where does this come from? He starts telling me about his childhood and I say, well, tell me more about your childhood. And he reveals to me that, you know, both of his brothers play in the major leagues now. His dad was a great pitcher in college, was a two-time All-American, uh, was drafted, and then became an alcoholic, like 65% of minor leaguers do. And mm-hmm. his career ended because of it. Right. And I said, tell me more about that. And sure enough, he reveals to me that his dad has been living vicariously through his children ever since. So they actually have a rule in their house that if one of the kids has a bad start, according to his dad, his dad won't talk to them until they have a good start. Right. And I said, "Where did? when did this start? He goes, oh, ever since I started playing baseball at six years old. Mm. And in my mind, I'm like, I couldn't imagine one of my parents not talking to me at six years old because I had a bad start on the baseball field. Yeah, yeah. Now, what he didn't tell me until a few sessions later was he's been in and out of rehab because when he had Tommy John surgery, they gave him opioids Mm. and he got addicted. Yep. And this addiction turned into heroin. Now, if you know anything about opioid addictions and heroin, 90% of users that get addicted had some sort of neglectful relationship in their past. And so I asked him, how did it get to the point of heroin? What was it like the first time you took it? And he said, it felt like my dad was hugging me. Yeah. Wow. And right then and there, we discovered that every time he goes out onto the mound, he is trying to impress his father because he wants so badly for his dad to talk to him. Yeah. And here's the, here's the even more heartbreaking part of this. It's been four years since he's talked to his father last. Yeah. Because that was his last start and it was a bad start. Oh man. So again, this is, this is an extreme, this is an extreme case. Sure. Right. Okay. So the question I always ask my athletes is who are you trying to impress? Right. And if you can get to the point, and this goes for everybody, if you can get to the point where everything is stripped away from you, you just had the worst performance of your life, and you can believe with the utmost certainty that everything's going to be okay, and that my value isn't determined by what goes on on the field, and my sport doesn't define who I am, then until we get to that point, we're going to continue to struggle with the same things. Right. Well, there you go, man. That's uh, that's great stuff, dude. I just, you know, it's one of those things where it's just not nothing's going to be done until until it's talked about. And uh, 
hopefully, hopefully this is it. You know, hopefully we're, this is the, your book and, um, with others out there, you know, hopefully coming out and, and not afraid to say those types of things and, and that the fear gets lifted, then, then I think some healing can start to happen. And if this podcast helps one person, man, then it, then it was hundred percent worth it. Yeah. And, um, and what you're doing, obviously helping lots of people, but unfortunately, man, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta wrap it up. We got, the rest of the day. Uh, we could go on and on and on. Yeah, we um, could, we could. But before, uh, before we leave here today, obviously, uh, I definitely want to have you back. Um, yeah, I would as, love to be back as kind of a, a repeating, um, interview, uh, maybe even a segment every month and a half. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it some more, um, just because it's too important to, to not have, but you can follow Riley on Twitter. Uh, at Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, uh, capital R, uh, and then Tincher, capital T-I-N-C-H-E-R. Um, you can follow him there. Tons of great motivational stuff, some of his own talks, uh, lots of quotes from 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 big-time coaches and players um, and kind of their mantra. Um, and then, uh, obviously, you have uh, the book out called Pitching Against Myself. That is uh, a must-read for anybody going through stuff like this. Um, and then um, host, uh, you're also the host of Coachability. Uh, and now is that a podcast? It's a, it's a podcast. It, I, I started as a Facebook Live show okay. uh, where I do it every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Central okay, Standard cool. Time. And then I just got so much feedback because, or, I mean, we talked about this earlier. Podcasts have blown up, especially in the last year. Yeah. Um, and the problem with Facebook Live is it's really hard to consume Right. Like I have to I have to physically watch it like I can't lock my phone. I can't put my phone away. I have to physically watch it in order to hear it. Right. Um, where a podcast, I can, you know, press play and then go about my business. There it is. Yeah. Um, so I got a lot of feedback saying, hey, you need to put this on a podcast. So what I started doing was I, I recorded it and then I uploaded it onto a podcast, which is actually first pitch because I also do a leadership podcast attached to it, uh, which is coaching the coach. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So lots of stuff to check out from Riley. Um, this has been <laughs> this has been great. Um, this will probably just be a standalone. Uh, <laughs> I probably won't even do another segment with this. It's been so good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, um, thank you so much for coming on today. And um, you can reach Riley at any of those uh, social media outlets. Um, yes. Obviously, very busy, but uh, you know, I know he'll he'll reach out to you as quick as he can. Hundred percent. Uh, and and help out. And uh, so. If you listen to this, uh, reach out, talk to people. They're out there, and uh, hopefully this helps help someone out there. But, uh, Riley, thanks again so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. A million times thank you, J.K., seriously. And I just yeah, want everybody to know that, uh, I mean, J.K. nailed it on the head so many times, but uh, I know it's cliche for me to say this, but you are. I hope this, I hope this podcast reveals to you that you are not alone um, and you have – two people fighting in your corner and that's me and JK. That's why JK does these things, uh, provides this resource for you in the podcast and among so many other things. Um, so again, if you ever need anything, uh, or even just a, somebody to talk to who will listen, reach out, please. We are here to help. There you go. All right, Riley. Well, I'm gonna let you go. I know you're busy. I got stuff coming up today, but, uh, man, we will talk again soon and, uh, it's been great. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. I really look forward to many, many more Baseball Rebellion podcasts. Sounds good, Riley. You have a great day, all right? Yes, you too, JK. Thank you again uh, for this opportunity, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Take care. You too. 
All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Baseball Rebellion Podcast. You guys have a great July 4th. I hope that everybody learned something from this podcast today. I know it's a little bit different, a little, uh, a little less lighthearted maybe than, than usual and, and not too much uh, baseball hitting or pitching, throwing stuff, but maybe something more important in the long run for, for you or one of your players. And uh, we strongly advise that, you know, if you need some help, reach out. Uh, there's some great resources around. Riley's a great great person to know and, and uh, read his book if you, if you have questions about it, obviously. Um, and uh, there'll be a promo code that I will write at the bottom of this uh, podcast, both in SoundCloud and on the Baseball Rebellion website for you to go uh, get, get his book for a little bit of a discount. So uh, I'll get that code written down for you at the bottom. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.